Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. We're going to dive right here into uh, Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, we're going to read verses 19 and 20. The Apostle Paul writes, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The letter of Galatians is most likely the, the first letter the Apostle Paul wrote. And the wonderful thing about the letter of Galatians is it's just saturated in the good news of Jesus Christ. It's just so gospel-rich, and it's been so influential to different people throughout our history. For example, Martin Luther comments on Galatians. He says, the epistle to the Galatians is my dear epistle. I have put my confidence in it. It is my Katie Von Bora, and Katie Von Bora is his wife whom he loved greatly. Then he explains something. He says, I've taken in hand in the name of the Lord yet once again to expound this epistle of St. Paul to the Galatians, not because I desire to teach new things or such as ye have not known before, since that by the grace of Christ, Paul is now thoroughly known unto you. But for that we have to fear lest Satan take us from this doctrine of faith and bring into the church again the doctrine of work and men's traditions. Wherefore, it is very necessary that this doctrine be kept in continual practice and public exercise, both of hearing and reading. And although it be never so well known, yet the devil, who rageth continually, seeking to devour us, is not dead. Likewise, our flesh and our old man is yet alive. Besides this, all kinds of temptations do vex and oppress us on every side, so that this doctrine can never be taught, urged, and repeated enough. If this doctrine be lost, and is also the doctrine of truth, life, and salvation, also lost and gone. If this doctrine flourish, and all good things flourish, religion, the true service of God, the glory of God, the right knowledge of all things which are necessary for a Christian man and woman to know. And it took me a long time to to grasp that, that. That, I mean, here, I mean, Martin Luther is talking about Galatians, and he's talking about, I mean, the central message of Galatians is the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and how this is is news that constantly has to be repeated over and over again. It is a message that constantly needs to be preached over and over again. Um, We're going to come back to Galatians 2, but I was saved when I was uh, 13 years old, and from that point on, it was an up and down journey with the Lord. And I'd fallen to the lowest point of my life when I was about 22 years old, made a mess of my life, and I turned from, from the Lord and His grace. And I could really relate to the younger son in the, in the prodigal son. I'd felt like God was this father that was just holding me back from experiencing the good life. So I was like, you know what? I can find this good life by leaving my father's comfort and safety, and I'll, and I'll go find freedom um, elsewhere. And of course, I too came to a pigsty moment and, and went home. It was then that I had a this, this just fresh understanding of, of the good news of Jesus. The fact that Jesus did what I could not do. In fact, anything that I attempted to do was an abhorrence. The fact that Jesus literally took my place and took the punishment for, for my sin, for what I deserved. 
and the fact that Jesus alone demanded the perfect righteous standard that God demanded, that only Jesus could meet that. And the fact that Jesus willingly restored me back to my Father in heaven. And I remember that season. Jesus was always on my mind. I always wanted to talk about Jesus. I always wanted to like, tell others about Jesus. And Jesus was changing me. He was cleaning house. And I took his words seriously. Words like Mark 8.34. Don't you love that Jesus has a way of, of shrinking crowds, right? It's really cool, right? He, he's got this large crowd and he says, calling to the crowd, he said, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I was like, Jesus, I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to take up my cross. I'm going to follow you. But then a shift occurred. It just became harder and harder and more difficult. And what happened is I began to slowly lose joy in knowing the Lord Jesus. And I was frustrated with Jesus. And in my arrogance, I would chide him and I would say, Jesus, you said that your yoke is light. Why is it so heavy? How many of you guys have ever had like an aha moment in your life? I sure did. I realized that I wasn't really carrying Jesus' yoke. I was carrying a different yoke. And that was a system of works, a way of thinking of, you know what, Jesus, I needed you when I got saved, but I got this from now on. And that is not a light yoke. A couple other paradigm shifts in my life that I pray that you have already had as well is when I first realized that the Bible was not a little answer book for life's problems. Another one was when I uh, was, you know, like I know there was so much teaching when I, when I got into youth ministry that said that the Bible is like God's personal love letter to you. No, it's an epic story about an epic God who is bringing glory to himself by rescuing and redeeming a people to himself so that he would bring glory back to himself by sending out his people to make disciples that make disciples. And then another shift in my thinking was when I saw this phrase, gospel-centered theology, and I was like, what is that? Like, I mean, I, know, I, know, I have an understanding of the, of the gospel, but what is a gospel-centered theology? And there were three scriptures that the Lord took me to that just really challenged my thinking. And you're going to have to go to these texts and study them because I'm just going to rip right through them. But the first one comes from John 5, 39 through 40. And this is G- Jesus speaking to the Jews. And, he's, and he looks to the Jews and he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me, that you may have life. Who do the scriptures bear witness about, brothers and sisters? Jesus. Luke 24, 25 to 27, this is on the road to Emmaus. Jesus speaking to Cleopas and another, who we we don't know. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scripture the things concerning who? Himself. Luke 24, 44 to 49, Jesus speaking. This is shortly after this. He appears to his disciples, right? This is like post-resurrection. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything, not some things, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. As I started to, as the Spirit of God started to just give me understanding to those scriptures, because I was 
just ignorant and so self-absorbed. I, too, could resonate with Luke 24, 32, where they said, did not our hearts burn with us while, we, while he talked to us on the road, while, we, while he opened to us the scriptures? Maybe some of you learned faster than I did, but this is, this is all about Jesus. The scriptures testify about him. Did you hear the words of our Savior? It's the scriptures that bear witness about him. In reality, it's all about Jesus. And I started to come across writings from different men of, uh, men of God throughout history. And I'd read quotes like this that would just, just floor me. It's a conversation that Jonathan Edwards was having with this preacher. And he had, he had, he had listened to this preacher preach. And he told the preacher that was a terrible sermon. So the preacher looks at him and he says, a poor sermon? It took me a long time to study. My explanation of the text was accurate. The illustrations were appropriate and the argument's conclusive. Will you tell me why you think it was a poor sermon? Because, said Jonathan Edwards, there was no Christ in it. Well, said the preacher, Christ was not in the text. We are not to be preaching Christ always. We must preach what's in the text. Then don't take a text without Christ in it. But you will find Christ in every text you, if you examine it. From every text in Scripture, there's a road to the metropolis of the Scriptures that is Christ. And my dear brother, your business is when you get to a text to say, now what is the road to Jesus Christ? And then preach a sermon running along that road. I have never yet found a text that had not a plain and direct road to Christ in it. And if ever I should find one that has no such road, I will make a road. I would go over hedge and ditch, but I would get at my master. For a sermon is neither fit for the Lord nor yet for the peasant unless there is a savor of Jesus Christ in it. <clears throat> Robert, <clears throat> Robert Murray McShine said, A man cannot be a faithful minister until he preaches Christ for Christ's sake, until he gives up striving to attract people to himself and seeks only to attract them to Jesus Christ. John Chrysostom, one of our church fathers, says, Read all the prophetic books without seeing Christ in them, and what will you find so insipid and flat? See Christ there, and what you read becomes fragrant. Another church father says, If the highest heavens were my pulpit, and all the world my parish, Jesus alone would be my text. Horatius Bonar said, It is not opinions that man needs, it is truth. It is not theology, it is God. It is not religion, it is Christ. It is not literature and science, but the knowledge of the free love of God and the gift of of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon said this, the best sermons are the sermons which are fullest of Jesus Christ. A sermon without Christ as its beginning, middle, and end is a mistake in conception and a crime in execution. So all throughout even history, even influential men and women of God simply knew that it was all about Jesus. And I know that this is very obvious, but it's interesting that you know, even in talking to people and um, even, even as, I, as I listen to uh, the, the different things people talk about and, uh, you know, and, and even given an opportunity to present Christ, it's, it's not enough, especially for Christians. So, yeah, Chris, that sounds nice, but can you give me something a little more pragmatic? But all we have is Jesus, and all we need is Jesus. You need nothing else for life and godliness other than the person of Jesus. But as we're going to look here so many of us, we only think about the benefits of Jesus versus the person of Jesus. And the Bible paints a completely different picture. And this was huge for me because it changed the way I looked at the entire Bible. One, I realized that it's all about Jesus, not about me. Some of us in here read the Bible as though it's like it's all about us. 
It's not about you at all. It's about Jesus. I'm just so grateful that I get to be part of his grand redemptive plan and his work. It's all about him. Then other scriptures just started to like pop out, like John 15, the fact that, you know, like the, the vine and the branches, that, that, I can do, that I can do nothing apart from Jesus. Scripture doesn't say I can do some things, or I can do a couple things. It's I can do nothing apart from Jesus, because Jesus is everything. And this also led to discover this biblical truth and this teaching on our union with Jesus Christ, our oneness with Jesus Christ. You know that phrase, in Christ, is used 91 times in the New Testament, in Christ. And most of them are used by the Apostle Paul. And if you were to, if you were to take all of Paul's teachings and you were to say, how many times does Paul even talk about this concept that we are one with Jesus? We are literally have become one with Jesus. It's over 200 times in his 13 letters. So I would say that's pretty significant to, to his writings, right? That Paul is trying to get us to, to understand something. It's not that, for example, it's not that you've just been forgiven of your sins and you've been redeemed and you're given the Holy Spirit. No. First, you have been made one with Jesus. You literally have the person of Jesus. And it's funny, um, I was talking to Pastor Brad about this um, three years ago, Romans chapter 6. <laughs> he was preaching uh, 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 Romans chapter 6, 3 to 5. And... Um, He's preaching on this very same topic of union with Jesus. And I encourage you to listen to that message. It's under October 25th, 2011. Because <clears throat> I'm not going to go deep in this, but I wanted to read that same passage to you. Paul writes in Romans 6, 3-5, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, buried therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And of course, this is significant because the Son of God literally took on flesh. And on taking on flesh, he identified with sinful humanity. He became one with them. Our humble king came as a servant who was made in in the likeness of man. And he was tempted in every way. And yet, this glorious Savior was without sin. And this glorious Savior became this merciful high priest who, who understands what it means to be made in human likeness and form. And of course, Paul speaks of being united to Jesus means that we've, we've simply died with him. What does it mean to be dead to sin? It's that, it's, that, it's that concept of this relationship to the realm and dominion of sin. That if we are in Christ, you two are dead to that realm. Of course, Jesus had come in and subjected himself to this, to this realm of sin. But of course, in his death, he was dead to it now. And we're baptized into him. We're being united to Jesus means that you're also buried with him. We're united to his burial. It's a final seal. It's done. It is, it is finished. Jesus really died and is really done with that relationship of the sin realm. He's completely outside of that world, that rule, and the, that dominion. And you get a connection to that if you're in Christ. And being united to Jesus also means that, according to Romans 6, that we're also resurrected with him. Union with Christ involving that full and complete participation and union in the resurrection to newness of life with Jesus. And hence, Paul develops this theology that we're all participators with Christ in his death, burial, and his resurrection. And we have a, now we now have a brand new existence. We live in a brand new society. We are new creations. The old has literally gone, the new has come. 
And of course, Christ can't die to sin again, and neither can you if you're united to him. And isn't it good news that what our sin demanded, Jesus Christ paid in full? Is that good news? It was paid once and for all. And you get to have that participation if you're in Christ in the resurrection. And what what are some things that Jesus has? The Bible tells us that Jesus has the Spirit without measure, the Holy Spirit. And if Christ is in you, you have the Spirit without measure as well. And the Holy Spirit is not some some second grade God. He is God himself. And he's displayed, of course, his power by resurrecting Jesus. And now, because of what Jesus has done, our relationship to sin has changed forever. Yes, we still do sin, but it doesn't change this objective truth, this objective reality that's grounded in the person and work of Jesus. And since this is the case, all right, we don't embrace a theology that tells us, hey, try harder, pull harder, pull yourself up by, by your own bootstraps. Now it's, no, we set our gaze upon the one who is perfect. We set, it's not like this stock market strategy where we say, hey, we want to diversify. We'll place a little trust in Jesus. We'll place a little trust in my own ability. We'll place some trust in money. No, all our eggs need to go into one basket in Jesus. So what goes wrong, though? If, we, if, if these objective truths are, truth about, like, are, are true about us in which we're, we're, you know, we've, died to, we've died to sin, right? We're no longer under that dominion, that we've been made alive with, with Jesus Christ, and we've participated in his resurrection. If that's true, why is it such a struggle today? And one of the things I see is this, this, whole, this whole rustling of the objective versus the subjective, right? For, for example, um, you know, the one illustration I can think of is um, the, the, the Israelites, you know, that were, that were freed from the Egyptians, right? They had cried out for freedom and said, please free us, free, like, please liberate us. They were in the bondage of slavery. And God does this miraculous uh, thing through Moses. He parts the Red Sea. That's pretty miraculous, right? Would you guys be pretty blown away? All right, there's this objective thing that happens, salvation, their deliverance. They literally cross through on dry land. And yet a couple chapters later, what do we see? Man, we want to go back to Egypt. We miss the food in Egypt. And I get that. I get that pull that, like, that even though objectively I've been delivered from the dominion of sin, subjectively you and I want to go back to our old slave masters, right? It's as though like we're in this prison and the prison door is wide open, but we keep subjecting ourselves to that prison. It's like we've been set free from the shackles of sin and slavery and bondage, but yet we just want to keep carrying it around. How absurd does that look? But yet, that's a struggle that you and I struggle with. If anyone can relate to that, say amen. amen. So we think about that objective and subjective. And look at, what about our, even our own identity? What is true of you because of Christ? Because you've been identified with him? Galatians 4 says that you've been adopted as a child of God. And then now you can call God your father, Right? Because you're literally in Christ. So when the Father looks at you, he looks at you and says, this is my son who I'm well pleased and I love, right? So in other words, you have perfect acceptance um, by the Father. You need not look anywhere else for your identity or for satisfaction or for worth, right? But how many of us have attempted since we've become saved to get our identity approval from other people? I have. We see that pull. We see that pull. 
And it is in that place of tension that we are. And this is why, okay, brothers and sisters, this is why preaching the gospel to ourselves is an ongoing, living, breathing thing. Because you and I often get blinded to the objective truths of the word of God and what we have in Jesus Christ. And this is what was happening here in Galatia. Look at Galatians 1, 6 through 7. The believers there, right? This is written to people that were already saved. And it says here, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And I get that. The same thing that happened to our brothers and sisters there in Galatia happens to us as well. And it's now that we come to Galatians 2.19 where Paul writes, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. And the law here is referring to the whole law, including the ceremonial law. And of course the law is not completely wiped out. It continues to, to operate in, in a way in the wicked. But for, for the person who is now in Christ, they are dead to the law. And to be dead to the law means to be free of it. We know that the law demanded death for those who broke it. But we also know that Jesus paid that penalty for all sinners. So Paul is saying that in Christ, he became dead to the law. No more looking to the law as a means of his right standing and acceptance before the Father. He's like, that's dead to me now. Nope, it's not my standard. The law has now lost its power over me, and it ceased to have any kind of influence in my life. I read this very funny quote from Martin Luther on commentary on this passage, and I love that our brothers and sisters in history have humor as well. He writes this about this concept. He said, Blessed is a person who knows how to use this truth in times of distress. He can talk. He can say, Mr. Law, go ahead and accuse me as much as you like. And he's like saying, nanu, nanu, right? Like, Mr. Law. I know I have committed many sins, and I continue to sin daily, but that does not bother me. You have got to shout louder, Mr. Mr. Law, because guess what? I'm deaf, you know. Talk as much as you like, but I am dead to you. If you want to talk to me about my sins, go and talk to my flesh. Belabor that, but don't talk to my conscience. My conscience is a lady and a queen and has nothing to do with the likes of you because my conscience lives to Jesus Christ under another law, a new and better law, the law of grace. Paul writes in 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And what is interesting here is that some theologians believe that Paul's more developed baptismal theology in Romans 6 may be, may be involved from this passage here, like this succinct passage statement in Galatians. But what did Paul mean when he said that he has been crucified with Christ, Because in a way, when you read that statement, I've been crucified with Christ, I'm a little taken aback. Like, what do you, what, what do you mean by that, Paul? Because then here it's the, the mystery of the atonement requires that the death of Jesus Christ be unique, unrepeatable, and isolated. It's one theologian comments, on the cross, Christ suffered alone, forsaken by friends, his followers, and finally even his father. And with reverence to his substitutionary suffering and vicarious death, only Jesus and he alone can be the substitute and vicar. In other words, that it was, in, in a way, I mean, this crucifixion is only possible through Jesus Christ. It wasn't, we don't have salvation to the two criminals that were, that were crucified with him. It's only through Jesus. So what do you mean, Paul? But this is Paul's point. All the benefits, all of them, 
of Jesus' atoning sacrifice, including justification, the fact that you can be declared right before God, are without effect unless we're identified with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. John Calvin comments on this. He says, as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains, remains useless and of no value to us. To be crucified with Jesus is to know Jesus, as Paul says, in the fellowship of his sufferings. Being crucified to Jesus means that you are now freed from all the curse and guilt of the law. You are now set free to live to God because Jesus Christ became the curse of the law for you. And this doesn't mean that you're able to be perfect this side of heaven. Some people will read Galatians 2.20 and develop this doctrine of perfectionism. No, because the fact is we still live in a realm in which sin, death, and suffering exist. But Paul made this clear by his statement, and the life I now live in what? In the what? In the flesh. We live in the flesh, and we live in that place of tension and battle, and we too, along with the rest of creation, we are also groaning for that day of redemption. But thanks be to God. And we're united in Christ, and we get to participate with him. And Paul is explaining here that there is a crucial, crucial, just radical transformation that occurs in the life of a believer, that he can say, I, the I, has died to the law, no longer lives. It's now Christ, the person of the Holy Spirit who lives within. And the Holy Spirit, depending on your you know, church tradition and what you, know, what you grew up thinking, he's, he's not a crazy uncle, all right? He's the very Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit is always testifying to the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself said in John 15, 26, when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And the interesting thing is that our Christian life takes place in the flesh, but it's lived by faith. Not only are you and I justified by faith, we are to continually live by faith. This means this. That faith isn't reduced to this one-time decision or one-time event in the past. It is to be a living thing and occurring on a regular basis. And who is the object of our faith, brothers and sisters? The Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, who loved me and gave himself up for me. And Jesus is the person that we are constantly to put our trust and faith in. So, you know what? When you... Trust in Jesus Christ for your your salvation. Do you know what you get? What do you get? You get Jesus. One of our church fathers said, one man may have a greater faith than another man, but no man has a greater Christ than another man. And the reason why this is so important is because you and I have this tendency to separate the person of Jesus and the works of Jesus. A lot of times, even in our presentation of the gospel, we're, we're, we're talking so much about the benefits of Jesus that we're not talking about, man, you get the person of Jesus. And what happens, and I don't mean to be crude, but what happens is if you just take the works of Jesus and you separate it from the person, it's almost like Jesus has now just become a friend with, 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 with benefits. When you place your trust in Jesus, you get Jesus. 
Jesus saved us for the Father's glory, to be in a relationship with him. And when Paul says that, that when he talks about that this, there's this just mystery to him, he's not talking about the union between husband and wife. What is he talking about in Ephesians 5? He's talking about that mysterious union that exists between Jesus and his bride, the church. Ephesians 5.32. And I know that we can sometimes overcomplicate things. I was reading this quote from um, Calvin on this, on, on this passage. He says, For my own part, I'm overwhelmed by the depth of this mystery, and I'm not ashamed to join Paul in acknowledging at once my ignorance and my admiration. <laughs> How much more satisfactory would this be than to follow my carnal judgment in undervaluing what Paul declares to be a deep mystery. Reason itself teaches how we ought to act in such matters, for whatever is supernatural is clearly beyond our own comprehension. Let us therefore labor more to feel Christ living in us than to discover the nature of that intercourse. What is he saying? Learn to enjoy Jesus. Learn to enjoy the person of Jesus Christ in your life. And how was this union realized? Of course, as we have talked about, many messages are more along the lines of pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. But in this life, we, in reality, we don't, we don't live in reality of all that Jesus has accomplished for us. And really, the challenge for all of us is that we need to grow in our awareness of the person and, of course, of his works as they're all attached, right? I mean, you think about all these, like, theological, like, like benefits, right? You're justified, you're sanctified, you're glorified. None of that is possible unless you're made one with Jesus. Those are all an outflow of your union with, with, with the person of Jesus. And we clearly see here that the pathway to life is death. Even though our union with Jesus and all the benefits attached to this union are ours, and they are declared facts, our awareness of this side of heaven is growing. So as you guys read the, the New Testament, right? And we clearly see that in the New Testament, there are a lot of biblical commands, what are called imperatives, right? But you, one of the things that you'll notice as you study the scriptures, there is never really an, an, there is never an, an imperative that is not birthed from an indicative. An indicative simply means a declared fact. So for example, right? The Bible never just tells you, hey, just forgive another person, Right? In fact, Ephesians says, forgive as what? As Christ has forgiven you. So the indicative, the declared fact is, as you have been made one in Christ and his death has been credited to your account now, and now that, now that you've been forgiven so much, out of that indicative comes that command, now you need to forgive. And if you're unable to forgive, there is some kind of hole in your understanding of the gospel. You are not seeing clearly everything that Christ has done for you. And hence the answer is like, hey, just try harder to forgive. No, the answer is, Holy Spirit, would you just show me the depths of my own sin and show me how much you love me and show me, show me your glory in your, in just, just in your person, Lord. As I read the scripture, would you just reveal that to me? And it's radically different. And this propels us to obedience, right? We don't, we don't obey and then we're, then we're accepted, Right? We're accepted completely by the Father solely because of what Jesus Christ has done. And out of that relationship, now we can obey. But brothers and sisters, things have to die in our lives. I don't want to say this in a legalistic fashion, but the Holy Spirit is looking to kill things in our lives. Because you know what? Chris needs to die. 
Because Chris always wants things that are contrary to the Father. And if Romans 8, if the end goal is that all of us were predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus, I want that to be my prayer. Brothers and sisters, are we willing to pray, Lord Jesus, whatever you need to do in my life to conform me to the image of the son and to help me, I mean, and and to reveal to me areas that I'm standing on other than Jesus, would you just do that? Are you willing to pray that? Are you willing to move away from self-centered, absorbed prayers? Father, we just bless me. Help me have a good day. Bless my kids that they have a good day. Pray that we would never get into harm's way. Father, just, just keep us safe. Protect us. I'm not, saying that's bad to, I'm not saying it's bad to pray those prayers of protection. We're willing to say, Father, whatever, whatever good, whatever highs and lows you need to bring into my life to bring me to greater dependence upon the person of Jesus so that wherever my feet land, they're not landing on anything else other than the person and work of Jesus. I pray we would be a church that prays that and know this, the flesh, the flesh. <laughs> I was listening to this preacher preach and uh, she was asking this preacher, can you please, like, my, 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 my family member has this, like, demonic, you know, like, you know, demon- and, and he wasn't, he, had, he acknowledged spiritual warfare, but he was just saying, this woman had come t- to him and this young man had a problem and he says, and, and she's like, can you cast out this demon? And he goes, I can cast out demons, I just can't cast out the flesh. And we do have the flesh. But don't forget, right? We fight flesh based on objective truth. The fact that we are now dead to it. And we can have victory in this lifetime. And brothers and sisters, of course, we do live in that place of tension, right? Between Christ's death, resurrection, and his his, his return. But I'm praying that you would just see your union with Jesus as central to, to your faith. So the question for all of us, and can I have the worship team come on up? Are you in Christ? And is Jesus calling himself to you? And if so, the Bible tells us that we are to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And respond to God by, by repenting and believing the good news of Jesus. That as John Newton famously said, We are great sinners, and Christ is a great Savior. For believers, do you know what you have? How many of you guys are parents in this room? How many of you guys as parents ever get frustrated when your kids complain because they don't realize what they have? Yeah, I I, I get furious. I get angry. Like, I get angry when my kids do that, and like, like unhealthy. Um, And I just remember, um, I remember my kids were complaining, and I'm like, man, they're so blessed, right? Like, you guys have everything. And I'm just like telling them, you guys, you know, the, the Bible says the will of God is to be thankful, right? And, um, and then, you know, as I went away from that, I, I, I felt, like the, I heard the Spirit. Chris, do you realize what you have? And I was like, oh, Father, forgive me. How often do I not live in light of the reality of everything that I have in Jesus? The fact that when I have Jesus, and the fact that now because of Jesus, I have a righteousness that's been credited to me that's not my own, Right? That because of what Jesus has done and I participate with him, I can stand confidently before the Father, not in anything Chris has done, but solely I can cling to Jesus and, and everything that Jesus has is mine. Do I live in light of that reality? How would that, how would that change our lives if we, if, we, if we really grasp the hold of that truth, the truths of the gospel? So Christian, do you realize what you have? 
uh, as we close, uh, we're actually going to have a, have a baptism. And uh, as we, so our folks get uh, ready for that, um, I just wanted to read to you. After the baptism, we are uh, going to sing a hymn. And many of you know this hymn. It's called uh, Be Thou My Vision. And uh, I'm, just, I'm asking that as we sing this hymn together, I'm just asking if we could make this our prayer. Um, and I just wanted to give you a little, this little background, right? I mean, uh, this, this hymn, it's an 8th century, um, written in the 8th century by this monk who was just so inspired by the life of St. Patrick. And this is not to exalt St. Patrick, but what he was so inspired was that St. Patrick, I mean, just, he just got it. I mean, he just was all about Jesus, you know? And it propelled him to, to just a life of mission and service and dedication to Jesus. And um, this, this hymn was translated from Irish to English in 1905, and then in 1912 was given the music melody. Um, and of course, there's some, you know, archaic English. So I, I just, I wanted to read to, to you the words of the hymn and a corresponding prayer, all right? Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Let's pray that, let's pray this. Let me see things through your eyes, Jesus, as you cleanse my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Jesus, don't be anything to me, except who you say you are. Thou my best thought by day or by night, Jesus, no matter the time or day, the best thing upon which my mind can meditate on is you. Waking or sleeping, thy presence, my light, whether I'm awake or asleep, your presence brings light to my life. Be thou my wisdom and thou my true word, Jesus, may all I know and say be of, from, and in you. And I ever with thee and thou with me, Lord. Jesus, let me always be with you as you are always with me. Thou, my great Father, I thy true Son, you are a great, true, loving Father, and I am your child. Thou in me dwelling and I with thee one. You are living in me, form me to look, act, and speak so much like you, it's as though we are one. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. I don't want to pay any attention to money or things or even compliments and encouragement of those around me. Thou my inheritance now and always. Jesus, I want you to be the most valuable thing to, to me in my life from here on out. Thou and thou only first in my heart. May you and only you be the first love of my life. And high King of heaven, my treasure thou art. You are both King of heaven and the treasure that is most precious and dear to me. High King of heaven, my victory won, you have already defeated the destruction of my soul. And may I reach heaven's joys, O bright heaven's sun. I long to be with you at your throne where all things revolve around the true and only Son. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall, no matter what happens, no matter what woos my heart, no matter what ups and downs, no matter what anything life would throw at me. Still be my vision, O ruler of all. Jesus, please let me see all things through the filter of you, for you are ruler, leader, Savior, my God. To Jesus be the glory forever and ever.